Now that brings us to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the record of the family line of Adam. So this is the next Taladot that we get to. The first Taladot was what came out of the heavens and the earth, just humanity in general. Now we get to the second Taladot, which is a true genealogy. This is the first full-blown genealogy that we have. And one of the weirdest, and weirdest I mean is in the hardest to figure out. We have no idea what's going on in this genealogy. And by no idea, I mean not no, no idea, but this genealogy is not as clear as what we think. So when God created humankind, he made them in his likeness of God. He created them male and female, and when they were created, he blessed them and he named them humankind. Now this is a very important phrase. Because as we go through chapter 4, it really seems like the image of God is lost. But when we get to chapter 5, God makes it clear that God made them in his likeness and his image. But when you get to Seth, then it says, verse 3, When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness according to his image, and he named him Seth. That's important. So what image and what likeness was Adam created in? God's image. So if Seth is then birthed in the image of Adam, then what image does Seth have? The image of God. And so the idea is despite sins, corruption, perversion, twisting of the image of God is not lost. It is not lost. And we're going to see this further emphasized in chapter 9 when God says, do not murder man for they are made in the image of God. And so this is your only sense of hope right now is that if the image is not completely lost, the man is redeemable. Man is redeemable. As you read through this, what was the pattern? What kept getting repeated over and over again? Okay, good. There's a he lived, which is a blessing because they all should have died. And this is the big thing you must understand. According to the law, what is the punishment for sin? Death. So what should have happened to Adam and Eve the minute they sinned? They should have died. Not just a spiritual death, but death, death, death. So the lived keeps communicating the grace of God despite the sin. Then they lived so many years and they had children. What is the significance of each one of them having children? Blessing. Blessing. Being fruitful, multiply. The seed is continuing. Okay, so God is also making the point that despite the curse, despite the fall, despite all that, they're still being fruitful multiplying. They're carrying out the mandate of God. And so right now you see the lived and the be fruitful multiply is a blessing of God is still there. The image is still continuing. And that is huge because that is the grace and the provision of God that we do not deserve. But there's another repetition. And then he died. And then he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Now, what's interesting is that this genealogy, along with one other genealogy in the Bible, is the only genealogy in the Bible that repeats that he died. You go to the Gospels, you go to all the other genealogies, and it just says, and he lived this long, and he had a kid, and that's it. Why does no other genealogy mention people dying? Because we know everybody dies. (laughs) Right? We have lived in this world long enough to know that everybody dies. So why does God mention repetitively that everybody's dying in this genealogy? Because it was new. And one could conclude that the serpent was right 
and God was wrong. Adam and Eve did not die. But the repetition here is saying, and he died, 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 died. God is right. The serpent was wrong. The only reason it took so long is because God is love and God is grace. But eventually all people die. And so this genealogy is making two major points. First, the blessings of God through fruitful multiply are still being carried out because of God's grace. But despite that, people die because of sin. But something breaks the pattern. The seventh person in the genealogy. And there it says that Enoch... When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And the entire lifetime of Enoch was 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. Now, some of your translations have taken up or he disappeared or he was translated, which is interesting. Um, But the Hebrew says he just wasn't there. He was no more. He was gone. What is the key? What enabled him to be no more? To escape death, quote, walking with God. That's the point that is being made here. That the ones who walk with God, they escape death. Now you're like, well, that's not true. I mean, I've never known a Christian escape death by walking with God. Yes, you did. Because they don't stay dead for all eternity and damnation. The point is not that every Christian doesn't die physically from walking with God, but every Christian will live with God when they walk with God. And that's the point here. Now, to throw a little grenade under your door, it does not say that Enoch did not die. And it does not say that Enoch was taken to heaven. That's an unfortunate assumption that has been propagated throughout the church. There's a couple problems with this. First, what's interesting is that he was no more is actually a metaphor for people dying all throughout the Bible. Example of this is Psalm 39, 13. And I can give you many other examples. He was no more. He's dead. That's used a lot. So it's interesting that God is using a euphemism for death to say that he didn't die. What the heck is going on there? Okay, I have no idea. But what's also interesting is it never says that he was taken up into heaven. Because the reality is, what is necessary to go to heaven? What's the only way you can go to heaven according to Jesus and the Bible? Salvation. If you're perfect, you're righteous. But we're told, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's not one who's righteous. No, not one. Is Enoch righteous and perfect without sin? No, we're not willing to say that. So can he go to heaven? No. And the only way you can go to heaven is if Christ's righteousness is imputed upon you. But the only way his righteousness can be imputed on you is through his death and resurrection. But Christ hasn't died yet. Nobody in the First Testament went to heaven when they died. This is why it's so revolutionary when Jesus looks at the thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise. So where did Enoch go? I have no idea. 
The point is that he's not dying the death in the way that everybody else does. Was he teleported somewhere else? There's actually some translations that say that. Or transmuted, as others say. Here's the reality. I know you desperately want answers because so do I. Okay? But this is why Enoch is one of the most mysterious people in all of human history. Every religion, every philosophy has written books on Enoch. And most of them you'd be like, that's no way. That's, not, that's so anti-God, so anti-biblical for that theory. But nobody knows. And God doesn't try to explain it. And he doesn't apologize for trying to explain it. His point is that Enoch, Enoch escaped the death that we're accustomed to because he walked with God. It does not mean that he did not die. Maybe his death was not a physical death and a painful death, one of suffering, of old age, but maybe he just disappeared into death. I don't know. Okay, now you may not like that answer. You might want to find a pastor who can give you an answer, and that's fine, but that doesn't mean he's right. Okay, I am much more comfortable with the I don't know than having to go to heaven one day and having to apologize for getting it wrong because I was not content with God being silent on this. The point is that he walked with God, and that allowed him to experience something different than the normal death. Just like you and I will die, but we will not experience the normal death that most of the world experience because we have the Holy Spirit and we're walking with God. The point is not what happened to him. The point is how God took care of him. He was no more. And then the genealogy goes on. Now, some of these names are similar to the names in Cain's genealogy, but they're different. So that brings us to the nature of the genealogy. What is this genealogy? Is this genealogy telling you how long everybody lived and how old the earth is? I have no idea. <laughs> All many people, there are much fewer now, it's mostly just answers in Genesis, who have added up all the years of these people and come to a number, and the number is 4,004. Therefore, the earth is only 6,000 years old. Now, if the earth is 6,000 years old, Okay, I don't care. It really doesn't change my life any. Okay, my life is still going to be the same short, dinky time period compared to all other things. Okay, but I don't, that's not the point. And I think this is very important. So many people get caught up in the scientific, scientific how old is the earth that they're missing the bigger point. And so for that, I'm just going to throw some wrenches in your thinking. First of all, when you look at in other genealogies, every other genealogy, they skip people. People are skipped all the time. And this is how you know. You have 10 generations, really. It just happens to be perfectly 10 generations between Adam and Noah. And it just happens to be 10 generations perfectly between Cain and his. And his. It just happens to be perfect 10 generations between Noah and Abraham. It just happens to be perfect 10 generations. I mean, over and you just see 10, 10, 10, 10. Like every generation, the godly guy just happened to be 10 every single time. Not likely. Two, it takes you 10 generations to get from Adam to Noah, but it's only 21 generations to get from Adam to Jesus. So 10 generations for a couple hundred years, maybe a couple thousand. 
but for like the whole history of mankind, it's 21. So that means in all that human, I mean, we know that there's much more time between Noah and us, or Jesus, than there is between Adam and Noah. And it all, it's only two times longer? Not likely. Every scholar knows that all the genealogies in the Bible skip names a lot. And we know that because we'll have one genealogy in Chronicles, and then you get to the, the, the same genealogies repeated in the Gospels, and names are missing in order to get to that 21, which is a multiple of seven completion. And so the authors are not interested in that because most of these people know their ancestry, and you can skip names and not be bothered by that because you probably know that genealogy. It's not until thousands of years later that we don't know those people that are being skipped, and then it bothers us. Two, they weren't obsessed with incredibly accurate details like we are. And we're not as obsessed as we like to think that we are, um, of having everything to be precise. It didn't bother them to skip generations because for them all it mattered was, but he's still a descendant of this guy, right? So who cares if I left a guy's name out? I'm not lying. I'm not deceiving. He still was two names down from this guy. Okay? I mean, and two, you, three, you have to also understand there is no word for son and a different word for grandson, and a different word for descendants. The Hebrew word for son, grandson, and descendants is the exact same word, which makes it incredibly different. Like when we get to Daniel, we're told that um, Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. No, he wasn't. He was the grandson. But we assumed he was because that's the way we read it, so we translate it son, and then archaeology revealed that he was actually the grandson, but you can't change the Bible translation now. Okay, we have dire traditions here. He's the son. Now, modern translations are, but the King James, oh my gosh, don't do that. So the problem is, is that they are okay with just descendant. He's a descendant of. He's the descendant of. So don't think of this as the son. Think of this as the descendant of Adam was Seth. The descendant of Seth was, and it could be skipping. The other thing is, these are really long lifetimes. Nowhere do we ever see these long lifespans. And the reality is when you look at other genealogies from the flood time, pre-flood time period, many of the people in other cultures, they lived to be like 27,000 years old. There's no way. Why? Because this time period before the flood is so unknown. It is a weird time period. Okay, especially when we get to Genesis 6. We don't, the names are strange. These names don't show up anywhere else in the Bible. They don't show up in any other writings. Every person in the ancient world, when they looked at the pre-flood time period, which, by the way, every culture has a flood story. When they look at the, they, there's this great mystery. Things are strange. Physics doesn't seem to operate the way that we are used to. I'm not saying it's not. It doesn't. I'm just saying that's the way they, they talk about it. People live for long periods of times. Not that they did. That's just the way they talked about it. There's strange mythological beasts that roam the earth. Not that they did. I don't know, but that's just the way they talk about it. It's very mysterious. It's very weird. And they had this idea that man lived forever. And they built cities like Atlantis, where technology abounded and all this kind of stuff. And all that was lost in the flood. Now, that could be true. I have no idea. 
How dare me to say what did and did not happen during before the flood when I don't even know what happened in the medieval period half the time because history is not recorded. But it's not likely that these people are living this long. What's interesting is they age very slowly. Notice that they don't have kids until they're well over 100 years old, which is strange. And notice that nobody makes it past the 1,000. A lot of people get right up to 1,000 and they never make past it. Why? That's interesting. What's also interesting is when you get, there's, three, there's, there's two Hebrew manuscripts, major ones. And then there's the Hebrew being translated into the Greek, which is called the Septuagint or the LXX. And when you read those three, which are very much respected, and they're all considered pretty accurate, all the ages of all the people are completely different. So which Hebrew manuscript is the most accurate? And one Hebrew manuscript, three people are living past the flood. And the other Hebrew manuscript, nobody lives past the flood, and Methuselah dies the year the flood comes. Which one's right? We have no idea. The other thing you must understand is dates are not important to them. First of all, they don't have dates. You and I are like, we're born in 2000 and whatever. We're born in 1977 or we're born in 1940 or 30 or whatever. They don't have dates. I'll give you an example. I just watched this movie called The Queen of Katwa, which is in Uganda. Great, incredible story. But she didn't know what year she was born in. She has no idea what month or day she was born in. She doesn't know what time it is. Because they're in the slums of Uganda, Africa, and they have no concept of time. They know a day is passing, but they don't have calendars, they don't have dates, they have no idea what time it is, and so nobody knows their birth dates, nobody knows the year or the day they got married, and it doesn't matter to them, and they live just fine. I mean, they're poverty and there's a lot of problems, but it's not like their identity is being threatened by not having dates. Even when you get just to the time of David and the time of some of the emperors, like Augustus, there's no dates. They say, I was born in the third year of Augustus, and I got married in the fourth year of Augustus, and it's be like I was born in the third year of Obama or something like that. But you know what, then? Most people don't even know what years their kings are ruling because they're peasants on a farm, and they're just trying to survive. The idea of dates are not important to them. They have no idea how many years are going by. They have no idea how old they truly are. So how does someone who doesn't know length of years and someone who doesn't really know dates tell you how old these people were pre-flood? Here's the main point that I think is being made. Now, I'm not trying to challenge and threaten your, oh my gosh, does that mean we can't trust what's in the Bible? No. Just remember that God is writing a very truthful, without error Bible, or not without error, infallible Bible but he's using people from that time period. Is dates really, truly important to communicate your trustworthiness? If somebody doesn't know when they're born, does that mean you cannot trust them? If somebody doesn't know how long they've lived, does that mean you cannot trust them? The point is this. In all the genealogies, people live to be 12,000, 10,000, 27,000. But in this genealogy, everybody's dying. Die, 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 die. They intentionally reduced the numbers of the genealogies to go below a thousand to communicate that man cannot live forever, like all those other genealogies are saying. 
but they're still really long because all people lived really long before the flood, right? Now you say, well, God knows what doesn't he? Why didn't he put it in their brain and tell them what the date was? Because that's not how God operates. God does not possess people and take control of them and write his Bible. God partners with people. And this is what you must understand. It's okay if some numbers are not completely accurate. That does not destroy the trustworthiness of the Bible. As long as you recognize that people who are writing this don't care about that. And the other thing I would like to say is this. Just because we care about today doesn't mean that that's the way it should be done. This is called cultural arrogance. Where we think if this is the way that I think and this is what I think is important for credibility and this is what has to be accurate, then that was, must be how everybody in all of history and everybody in the world should think. And then when they don't think like us, we call them uncivilized backwards people, right? Now, I'm not saying we necessarily do that, but we can subconsciously kind of buy into that opinion like, oh, yeah, they might not be trustworthy because they're not as accurate or detailed as us. But that's just not the way they think. So is it okay that a culture who doesn't care about precise dates and lengths of years can record something to you and truly still be accurate on theological issues about who God is? Is it okay that God is not obsessing over every little detail, but is still accurate? Because he's using people and their culture. The Bible was not written for, to us. It was written for us. Which means he's writing to those people with their way and communication. We have to then translate their way for us and be okay if it's not our way. And if I haven't made that clear or if I've misconfused, I apologize because it's just hard to communicate that. So let me say this. I'm going to quote Gordon Winham, who's considered like the authority on Genesis. Um, and it's kind of one of those things, if somebody said it great, then don't try to say it differently. <laughs> to date, then no writer has offered an adequate explanation of these figures. If they are symbolic, it is not clear what they symbolize. If they are to be taken literally, we are left with the historical problems which we begin. The majority of commentators therefore just offer some general observation of a more theological nature. This genealogy is designed to show how the divine image in which Adam was created was passed on from generation to generation, and that divine command to be fruitful and multiply was fulfilled. Many ancient peoples have held that in the primitive antiquity, men live much than much than at present, um, longer than at present. The Sumerians believe the pre-flood kings reigned for thousands of years, and according to the Lagash king list, babies were kept in diapers for hundreds of years. Yeah, right. That's a miserable parenthood. <laughs> it may be that Genesis 5 is reflecting such ideas and suggesting that the history of mankind st stretches back into an inconceivably distant past. Kazuto, another famous scholar, though sees in the ages of the patriarchs relatively low when contrasted with the enormous reigns of the Sumerian kings. That's the other thing. Why is the ages drop so drastically after this genealogy? The Hebrew writer was intent on scaling down the alleged ages of man's earliest forebears. Though they lived a long time, none reached a thousand, which in God's sight is but an evening gone. 
Psalm 94. Gibson, another well-respected scholar, suggests that these figures are designed to show that though the narrative is dealing with very distant times, it is a sort of history, and that however long men live, they were mortal. They still died. These seem better approaches to these great ages than attempts to find a symbolic or historical truce in the precise ages of the patriarchs. Could it be that the precision of the figures conveys the notion that these patriarchs were real, while the magnitude represents the remoteness from the author of Genesis? Even if we know that 20 centuries is really too short for the time period of the creation of man to the call of Abraham, it still feels like a very long time to anyone who tries to think himself back through such a period as anyone who tries to do this for the years from the present to the time of Christ will quickly discover. Could it be the point is not that they lived to be this long, but the point is that the preciseness of the numbers, that they're not round out, 900, 600, means that they're very real people who very real did live, but the long years are communicating the fact that it was such a long time ago and we have no idea what's going on, but the fact that they don't make it past the thousands is communicating the idea that they still die. And could it be the point is not, let's get the date of the earth, because that really does not change my relationship with God. But the point is that they are still fruitful, multiplying, obedience to God, and that's a time period that we don't fully understand, but in the end, everybody dies. And that fits more into the theology of the Bible than obsessing over a precise date over the earth. Could the earth be exactly 6,000 years old? Could be. But does it really matter? You're missing the point of Genesis 5 if you focus on the things that God has not given answers to. Because here's the other interesting. All archaeological evidence says that civilization at least went back to 10,000 B.C. So that contradicts here. But it doesn't if you realize that God is not trying to make that point. Does that make sense? So if that's not clear, I apologize. I know this is a a totally Amer foreign American concept to think, and it's, it's foreign to me too, okay? I still want preciseness. So if you want preciseness, I'm there with you, but that's not where we're given. The point is that they all died, and despite that, they still were able to be fruitful and multiply. Now, there's another break in pattern. At the end of chapter 5, the break in pattern is Noah's birth. And this time it's not said that Noah walked with God and he was no more. The point that's being made here is that Noah is going to bring comfort to his people. Despite that he died, he died, he died, he died, somehow Noah is going to bring comfort to his people. Now, here's also how we can see that maybe Enoch is not literally escaping death because Enoch, Noah is going to help people escape their death but not like in their permanent, I will never die kind of a sense, but that I will not die under the judgment. And you're like, well, who did he help escape their death? Well, nobody, but it was offered to them. He was going to help them. They just didn't accept it. And so this is very important to understand. Does this make sense? Is there any questions? Yes. A lot of the names are very similar to the other genealogy. Now, there's another point that's going to be made. And the point is this. Was Seth a godly man? Yes, because at that time, people began to worship Yahweh. 
Was Enoch a godly man? Yes, because he walked with God. So a lot of people have made the conclusion that Seth's line was completely godly and Cain's line was completely wicked. There's a problem with that. When have you ever known a family line for multiple generations to be perfectly and completely one thing or the other? Not very much. Okay? And here's the other problem. Methuselah is going to be the oldest man that we know of, according to this, and notice that he's going to die the year of the flood. When God looks at the world, he says, everyone was only thinking only evil all the time but Noah. Which implies, well, it doesn't imply it, frankly, just outright states it, that everyone was evil but Noah. So that also includes the descendants of Seth and Methuselah, except for Noah. But in this genealogy, we're told that all these guys had other sons and daughters, which means is Noah the only guy in the line of Seth? No. There's lots of sons and daughters in the line of Seth. And it is it, well, what if Methuselah was a righteous man, but God spared him and let him die the year of the flood, but right before the flood came? I've heard people say that. But it was 120 years before the flood that God said, everyone was evil but Noah which includes Methuselah. And so this is what's important to understand. Yes, there's some godly people in Seth's line, and maybe there's some godly people in Cain's line, but that doesn't mean that everyone was godly and everyone was wicked. The point is, these are the two routes you can take. You can take a route where you seek cities and technology in order to overcome the curse and be your own god, or you can be the kind of person that walks with God, and people begin to worship God because of you. God does not make the point that everybody was this and everybody was that. He's just giving you examples of wickedness and examples of godliness. And the idea is no matter how dark it gets, there's always hope. And no matter how awesome you think it is, there's always a deeper wicked and evilness in there somewhere. And that's the point. Any questions? I was just going to say, so it sounds like Noah's family, his daughters and his sons and their wives, were spared because of Noah. Yes, and you could conclude that, but we also have to understand headship. And headship might also include that his whole entire family was godly. Because you don't necessarily mention each individual in the family, you just mention the patriarch. And by, like if I say the Bacher family, or the whatever, like, you pretty much imply that's everybody. Now, that's like, well, that's obvious. He said the Bacher family. But remember, we're in a patriarchal society. And the husband is the name of the family because his name is the family name because there are no last names. So, so one could then say that that family is righteous. And if Noah is truly a righteous man, then chances are his family is also righteous. Now, I know that's not a guarantee um, that just because you're a godly person, all your kids will turn out godly. Um, but if you're a godly person, at least one kid should turn out godly. <laughs> so, but that's the general idea. But we're also going to learn later that Noah's not as godly as what you think because he's going to get drunk and naked, and that his other son's not as godly as you think because he's going to see his father naked and humiliate him. So, because the point is, no matter how godly you are, no one is righteous. So, we must understand that. I got confused because the fuck you said everyone except Noah was evil, and then he said, not everyone, just individuals. 
No, the point is that when some people, um, well, yes, Seth was godly and Enoch was godly, but they died before Noah came along. Um, but the point is a lot of people look at the line of Seth and want to say that entire line was godly. But the point that God is making is everybody was evil except for Noah. But Noah may also include just his family. But Noah cannot include anybody outside his family because people outside his family is not him. It's not his family. So that's the other thing that's hard for us to understand is that when we think of you, we think of you. But when people think of you in the ancient world, they think of your father, your mother, your family. And you kind of get a hint of that when you might have had a teacher said, well, you're not as good of a student as your brother was. <laughs> okay, and you can't get past that, or I totally thought you were going to be a punk after your brother. Okay, so that kind of gives us an idea, but we, we think so individualistically that we think Noah is righteous. But they don't think that way. They think family. So it, so it could be that by the grace of God they were included in order to keep it going, but it also could be that they all were because Noah just becomes the encapsulation. And when we get to the sin of chapter 6, I think it's more likely that they were probably godly because I have a hard time believing God allowing these people to live just because they just happened to be the daughter of Noah. Especially when God is taking drastic measures to wipe everybody off the face of the earth, I doubt somebody's going to escape that judgment just because they happen to be the daughter of that guy. So there's, there's this incredible evil that's happening.